الحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله I'll praise be to Allah and may Allah's peace and blessings be on the last messenger of Allah In the last four sessions we completed the topic of Tawheed and in the next four sessions we will be looking at what is known as Tafsir First four lessons were concerning the Islamic concept of God. We said the term used to refer to that concept is Tawheed. Tawheed meant maintaining the unity of Allah or of God, the unity of God in both our concept of God as well as in our relationship with God in terms of worship. That everything we do in the name of God, for the sake of God, acts of worship to God, all of them reflect a unity, a unique unity. Now, God's revelation to man was recorded in books of revelation from the time of Adam until the last prophet Muhammad, may God's peace and blessings be upon him. The scriptures which came before, as a Muslim, we all have to accept and recognize. Revelation was given to Adam, revelation was given to Abraham, to Moses, to David, to Jesus, and finally, the last revelation was given to Prophet Muhammad. May God's peace and blessings be upon all the prophets. And there were other prophets who received revelation, scriptures. Some of them we know about. They're mentioned in the Old Testament of the Bible. Some of them are mentioned in the Quran, not mentioned in the, in the Old Testament. And there are others, as God says in the Quran, prophets, about whom God has not given us information. But He has informed us, لَقَدْ بَعَثْنَا فِي كُلِّ أُمَّةٍ رَسُولًا We have said to every nation a messenger. Messengers were sent to all nations. So revelation came to all uh, nations of mankind. However, for us today, to follow revelation and we know that it is necessary to follow revelation because the human mind if it is left to decide what is good and what is evil it will decide on what is convenient to itself this is the nature of human beings we consider the things good which are pleasing to us and the things evil or bad which are not pleasing to us. However, some of those things which are not pleasing to us are in fact good, good for society. And some of those things which are pleasing to us are bad, bad for society. So, if we are left to judge good and evil, we will corrupt society and this is what God says if 
judgment were left to man, that there would be corruption throughout the land. And the only way to avoid corruption is to judge by revelation. Because what God has revealed is impartial. It is not favoring any class in society over any other class or any nation over any other nation, any race over any other race, males over females, whatever, no. The revelation, the judgment of God and the messengers of God is impartial. It is based on the realities of man and society. Now, the final revelation, the Quran. Why Muslims hold on to that final revelation and do not follow the previous revelation lies in the issue of authenticity. What is authentic and what is not authentic? To understand the basis of the authenticity of the Quran, it is necessary for us to understand how it was revealed, how it was recorded, etc. So, basically, this is what we'll be looking at in the first uh, session. We'll be looking at the compilation of the Quran. Now the term tafsir, which we mentioned here, tafsir literally means commentary. Commentary. And in specific it refers to commentary on the Quran. It is a science amongst the Islamic sciences, the science of interpretation of the Qur'an. How does one interpret the Qur'an? Is it just a situation where everybody is free to take it and understand it as how they please, you know? Or are there strict rules that have to be followed in its interpretation to ensure that the proper interpretation takes place? This is what we'll be looking at when we go into the actual science of tafsir. But for now what we're looking at is basically the compilation of the Quran. Now, the first error to look at is the error of the Prophet Muhammad himself. His error of prophethood is from 609 CE to 632. We use the term CE instead of AD. AD comes from the Latin Anadomini, which means in the year of our Lord. Right? In the year of our Lord. Uh, that is believing that Jesus was God. You know? So we don't believe this is God, so we don't use this term AD. We use CE. CE means. Christian era. This is more common in writings today. Christian era, or sometimes they use CE to mean 
common era. This is the common era that people have agreed upon now, which started from zero. Because zero, in any case, was not necessarily the time when Jesus was born. Even uh, Western scholars, biblical scholars, they have agreed that you know zero, what was thought to be the zero point, which the correct constant from, is not the date actually on which Jesus was born, not even the century. Now, during the lifetime of Prophet Muhammad, may God peace and blessing be upon him, and his prophethood was 23 years. That's the period of prophethood. The Quran was not revealed to him all at once. It was not a book or scripture revealed to him at one instant. But the revelation began if we subtract 23 from here, we get 9. It's 609. The revelation began 609. We're not saying he was born in 609. We're not saying he was born in 609. But this is the period when revelation began. He was 40 years old when the revelation began. He died at the age of 63. Okay? And Prophet Muhammad, may God's peace and blessing be upon him, he was part of a group of people in Mecca who used to go out onto the desert and reflect and to meditate. He had, from youth, rejected the worship of idols, which was common in Mecca at the time where he was born. And there were other people like him who used to do that, who used to go out in the desert and meditate, pray to God, believing in a one God, but not having the benefit of revelation to know exactly how to pray and everything, but they used to go and pray and fast anyway. They were a part of a group who were known as the Hunafa, is the term which they used to refer to them. Now. I mean, I won't go into too much detail of this. I mean, this is really in the area of Sirah, the biography of Prophet Muhammad But you know that when he was meditating in the cave of Hira, uh, the angel Gabriel came to him and the process of revelation began. When the, the first, the revelation began, at first he was fearful he was not certain that this was revelation. He was not certain that maybe, uh, you know, it was a trick, a devilish trick on him, etc. So he himself uh, sought to find ways and means of determining whether in fact this was revelation or not. He asked his, his wife, he asked others, he went even to, there was uh, the relative of his wife, Waraka Ibn Nawfal who was a Christian at the time, reading the scriptures, and uh, they related to him what 
experience the prophet had had and now Paul confirmed to him that yes, this was in fact revelation. This was not something devilish. In any case, the point is that revelation began at this point. When it first began in 609, Prophet Muhammad, may God's peace and blessings be upon him, used to try to repeat whatever was related to him by Angel Gabriel. He would try to repeat after him in order that he wouldn't forget it. However, God revealed to him that there was no need for him to do this, that God would preserve it in his heart. And this is in chapter 75, verses 16 and 18. It is mentioned there in the Quran. God says there, Do not move your tongue hastily to learn it. Surely we have collected it and recited. So when we recite it, follow its recital. From this point, Prophet Muhammad, may God peace and blessing be upon him, you know, sub submitted his affair to God completely. Whatever was revealed to him remained imprinted in his heart. God caused it not to be forgotten. Now, he then conveyed whatever was revealed to him to his companions, those around him. And they in turn recorded, because Prophet Muhammad, may God peace and blessings be upon him, was illiterate in the sense that he could neither read nor write. Literacy was not that common in Arabia at the time. There were some amongst them who were literate, but like in many parts of the world, there was only a small segment of any given society that were literate. Now the Prophet, may God peace and blessings upon him, was not literate. So what happened is that the, the message that he conveyed had to, be con uh, had to be recorded by those around him in one way or another. Now, he used to recite the portions of Quran that came to him in congregational prayer. And you know this is done aloud. So his companions would hear the portions of the Quran recited aloud in congregational prayer. And this would help them to remember it. Whenever someone entered Islam, they were also taught the prayer, just as many of you are convert Muslims, new Muslims, when you first come into Islam, you're taught Fatiha, you're taught some chapters from the Quran. In the same way, this is the same tradition that was from the time of the Prophet. Whenever new people came into Islam, they were taught the basic prayers and they were taught chapters from the Quran to use in their prayers. There were some amongst his companions, those who accepted Islam, who were scribes who were able to write. And he chose a number of them to be his personal scribes who would be with him throughout the rest of his life. Whenever revelation came, he would recite it to them and they would record it. Furthermore, he encouraged his companions saying that the best amongst them were those who learned the Quran and taught it to others. This is a very common uh, statement or hadith of Prophet Muhammad The best of you 
are those who learn the Quran and teach it to others. So he encourages companions to learn the Quran and teach it. So there were four basic methods by which the Quran was preserved in the lifetime of the Prophet Muhammad. It was preserved in the memories through recitation in congregational prayer, one. It was preserved by those who came into Islam having to learn portions of the Quran, two. This is all in memory. Three, he encouraged his companions to learn and to teach the Quran. And four, there were scribes who wrote down the Quran as it was revealed. So the Quran, in the time of the Prophet Muhammad was recorded in the memory and in writing. It is recorded in the memory and in writing. And it's very important for us to understand the significance of memory in those days. In a society which is, was fundamentally an oral culture, their memories were very strong. It's not like us today, who we, de we depend on writing. And by depending on writing, our ability to memorize is weak. But a society that doesn't write, all it does is convey things orally, then it means that their memory is very strong. It means from childhood. You see? You see, you have a society from childhood. When parents want something, they instruct their children, they give them lists of things to do, to go to the market, to buy things. So they give, they're not writing it down on paper. Like now when we want to send our kids to the market, we write down the things on paper to buy something from the shop. Exactly what we need, we have to write it all down. If it's more than two or three things, we've got to write down a list for them. In those days, they just told the kids two or three times, they told them, it was in his head, he went and bought. If he didn't, he got a spanking, whatever, you know. He was encouraged from the early ages to retain whatever he heard or she heard. So a society that grows like that, naturally their ability to hear and to, to memorize is much greater than it is in our time. However, the Quran was not only recorded in that method, it was also recorded, as I said, by the scribes who were around the Prophet Muhammad They recorded it in writing. Now, at that time, of course, writing materials were not readily available. Paper was not invented, you know. In, in, in Egypt, they were making papyrus paper, uh, reed paper, but it was not available in Arabia. What they wrote on in those days were the skin, dried animal skins. This is known as parchment today. This is one of the most common uh, things which were used for writing materials in most parts of the world. They also wrote on uh, flat stones. They wrote on tree bark, wood, and even the shoulder blades of sheep and camel, you know, which have a surface, a wide surface, they used this for writing. So, Naturally, the Qur'an during the lifetime of the Prophet it was recorded but on many different pieces of material. It was not in one complete text to say when the Prophet died, 
you know, here we have the text of the Quran. No. It was memorized in its totality. However, it was not written all up as one text. But what was revealed was recorded on a variety of different uh, materials. Now, after the time of the Prophet, when he died in 632, the Caliph Abu Bakr, who was his closest companion, Abu Bakr, he took over for two years, 632 to 634. Now, during this period, there was a revolt in Arabia. During the lifetime of Prophet Muhammad, may God peace and blessing be upon him, Islam spread over all of Arabia. Muslim governors were over Yemen, you know, over this area, Bahrain, all over Arabia. Islam had spread there. But Islam had not reached all of the people in the sense that all the people became Muslim. But it was ruling Arabia at the time. However, when the Prophet Muhammad died, there were some people who had submitted to the spread of Islam militarily. They submitted and said, okay, we accept, you know, Islam because it was stronger, as a stronger society, stronger force. So they submitted and they became Muslims, accepted Islam. But they were, when they paid tax, when they were paid of zakat, we know we have this principle of zakah. Every Muslim is required to give 2.5% of his accumulated wealth to the poor. This zakah, which was required of all Muslims, they were paying that thinking that they were paying it as tribute to Muhammad. You know, like when kings conquer a land, the conquered people pay tribute to the conquerors. So they were looking at zakah as tribute, whereas it wasn't. So after the Prophet died, they decided that they don't want to pay it anymore. So we don't want to pay zakah anymore. Finish. You know, Prophet Muhammad is dead, no need to pay it anymore. Okay. Now, there was also another group which formed behind the false prophet known as Musaylama, from the tribe called Hanifa, from Nejd, which is close to this area. This is the, of the eastern region of Arabia. A prophet arose there. One individual, he claimed he was a prophet. Actually, during the lifetime of Prophet Muhammad, may God peace and blessings be upon him, he had offered him a deal that they would split Arabia between them. You know, he would rule in one part and the prophet rejected this, you know. And, and identified him as a false prophet. There was also a false prophetess by the name of Sajah from the Tamim tribe. And she joined up with Musaylama. So we had false prophets in Eastern Arabia. Sajah, female prophet from the Tamim tribe, and Musaylama from the tribe known as the Hanifa tribe. 
And there was also in the southern part of Arabia, in the area called Najran, who's the one other prophet whose name was Aswad, Al-Aswad. He is from the tribe of Ant, which is in Najran, in southwestern Arabia. So these were the false prophets and prophetess, and we also had those who rejected those who rejected to pay zakah or charity, compulsory charity. Now these represented a force now which threatened the center of Islam, Mecca and Medina. They came militarily wanting to impose either their false teachings, the prophethood, prophets, or impose their right to reject the payment of zakah. So Muslims under the leadership of Abu Bakr, who became is known as the first caliph, right, the first caliph, Abu Bakr, he led Muslims in a struggle against these groups. Now during the course of this struggle, within the first year of this struggle, another companion of the Prophet, whose name was Omar Ibn al-Khattab, He came to Abu Bakr and made a suggestion to him. The suggestion was that the Quran should be written together in one text to avoid the possibility of it being lost. Why? Because he noticed that many of the people were involved in the wars against these individuals, right? Who were being killed, who were on the front lines of the battles being killed. Many of them were those who had memorized large portions of the Quran. So for fear that the Quran may be lost, he suggested to Abu Bakr that he start the process, have somebody responsible for recording the Quran as one text. Now, why so many of those who memorized Quran were being killed? Why? Because they had absorbed the message of the Quran, God's revelation to man. And this had given them the courage and the commitment to go to the front lines to die for the sake of Islam. This is why they were in the forefront. The more a person learned of the Quran in those days, the more it motivated them to sacrifice, to commit and submit themselves totally to God. So the Quran had that effect on them. 
and as a result they were in the front lines of the battles. Many of them were being killed. So when Omar suggested this to Abu Bakr, Abu Bakr's first reaction was no. He didn't want to do it. Why? Because Prophet Muhammad, may God's peace and blessings be upon him, had not done it. You see, the Prophet Muhammad had warned his companions, telling them, Man amrina ma Whoever brings anything new in this religion, it is rejected by God. That Islam was complete, as Allah said in the Quran, Al-Yawma akmaltu lakum dinakum, wa atmamtu alaykum ni'mati, wa raditu lakum al-Islam adina. Today, Allah says in the Quran, I have completed for you your religion. And my favor upon you. And I'm pleased with Islam as your religion. So the religion was complete in the time of the Prophet. So, taking those two principles together, the companions, the disciples of the Prophet Muhammad were very reluctant to bring anything new, to make any changes in the religion from the way that the Prophet had brought it. So, Abu Bakr was first reluctant. But Omar continued to discuss with him and reason with him to show him that what the Prophet was doing by having the scribes record was to preserve it in writing. Not just to depend on the memory, but to also preserve it in writing. And Allah refers to the Quran in its text itself as a book. This is the book in which there is no doubt. So Allah refers to it as one text. So therefore, for us to put it in a text is not going against the way of the Prophet. The Prophet left the basic principle of recording, etc., for preservation in writing, and it was up to them to do it in the best way possible. So, Abu Bakr became convinced, and he then instructed one of his companions, one of the companions of the Prophet, another one, by the name of Zayd ibn Thabit, to compile the Quran in one text. Now, when he spoke to Zayd ibn Thabit and instructed him to do this, Zayd's first reaction was the same as his, same as Abu Bakr. He said, how can I do something which the Prophet didn't do? So, Abu Bakr and Omar had to discuss with him and reason with him to convince him to do this job. He became one who took on the responsibility of compiling the Quran into one text. Now he was chosen for four basic reasons. The first reason was that he was one of the few who memorized the whole Quran in the lifetime of Prophet Muhammad And he asked for the copy of the Quran from Hafsa. He called Zayd ibn Thabit to again uh, make a transcription from this original copy to a number of other copies. And 
a total of seven copies were made. And these copies were sent to the main centers of Islam at the time. One was sent to Mecca, one to Syria, one to Basra, one to Kufa, one to Yemen, one to Bahrain, and one was kept in Al-Madina. Okay? Now, at the same time, these copies were sent along with an official reciter of the Qur'an, someone from amongst the companions who knew how to recite the Qur'an correctly. So it was not just the text sent, but a reciter was sent along with it to ensure that the recitation was correct. And an instruction was also given that all other texts, people had also made their own private copies during this period. They had made their own private copies from their memories or uh, some had, made, had gone and made transcriptions from Abu Bakr but, and passed on to others who made other transcriptions and so on and so But it was not a controlled transcription. So there were errors in the writing, etc. Some people made footnotes in the margin or whatever. And this, some people might have thought these were part of the text. So it was decided at that time that all other copies of the Quran this period here, all other copies of the Quran were to be destroyed and new copies were only to be made from the official one which came back from the time of Abu Bakr that was transcribed systematically and with quality control to ensure that the text was pure I, I'm, I'm mistaken. This process of writing, the seven, six, seven copies were made, were completed by 646, within two years after the time of uh, Osman's reign. He began 644, within two years of his reign, the seven copies were complete and sent to the centers. What does this mean? Allah in chapter 15, that is Surah Al-Hijr, verse 9 says, Verily we reveal the reminder, the Qur'an, and verily we shall preserve it. Inna nahnu dhikra wa inna That Allah, this final revelation, Allah preserved it not only in the memory of people, but its text was also preserved pure. Pure from any kind of interpolation or change. This was critical. Why? Because Prophet Muhammad, may God's peace and blessings be upon him, was the last of the prophets of God. Allah says in the Quran that he was the seal of the prophethood. No prophets were to come after him. So, if he were to be the last prophet, then the revelation which he brought had to be preserved for all time. Otherwise, if it were going to be distorted as what happened to the revelations which came before, then the message would be lost. 
the purpose of his prophethood being the finality would be lost. So because God chose him to be the final prophet, then the message which he brought had to be preserved unchanged. So that people up until the day of judgment would have access to that final revelation as it was revealed. Now, this text of the Quran has been scrutinized by Western Orientalists seeking to find mistakes, to find contradictions, so that it may also be put in the same category as the Old and the New Testament. Because we know through the science of scriptural criticism developed by uh, Western biblical scholars, it has been proven without a doubt that the New Testament, what we know as the, the Gospels and the writings of Paul, as well as the Old Testament, has many, many uh, interpolations have taken place. This is why you will find, for example, if you look at the King James Version of the, of the uh, Bible, you'll see footnotes where verses have been dropped out from earlier translations. And they will say these verses were not available in the earliest, uh, the earliest um, manuscripts, etc. So, and you'll find when you pick up from Bible to Bible, the new revised standard version and the this version and that version, you'll find verses added and deleted and, you know, so much. Even between the Catholic and the Protestant Bible, Catholic Bible has seven books which are not even found in the Protestant Bible, you know. So, these kind of variations due to scriptural criticism, you know, uh, being proven to be uh, interpolation and changes, the secularist scholars try to put the same uh, status on the Quran. And they gather manuscripts from Russia, Tashkent, you know, this is Tashkent in Russia, where they have some early manuscripts from this early period from the time of, uh, time actually of Uthman, copies made, some of the copies, copies which were made from the seven copies ended up in Tashkent, ended up in Turkey, in Egypt, they're in the Library of Congress, they're in London. So they gathered these manuscripts and they compared them. Because this is how you know when interpolation has taken place, right? If you compare two manuscripts of the same text and you find differences in the text, one which is earlier than the other, right? Then you can assume that what is in the second, the later text has been added. Right? However, when they compared manuscripts, whether they picked them up in Indonesia, you know, in India, or in Spain, in Algeria, or in Tashkent, in Russia, they found no difference in the text. The text was the same. There were differences in the style of writing, but the text the same, no difference. Which is proof, scientific proof, that the Quran has not been changed. And this is the basis of Islam, the scripture, the final scripture which has been remained, which has remained unchanged. Unchanged and recorded, preserved, not only in writing, 
but in the memories of millions. From the time of Prophet Muhammad if one were to destroy, if one were to invent a bomb which would explode in the world today and only destroy paper, right, a paper bomb, the only religious text, scripture that could be rewritten word for word without a single change is the Quran. Though the Quran, the length of it is like the length of the New Testament. The Quran, we know, we have schools here, right here in, in Emirates. We have schools all over the Muslim world where children are put through courses, three-year courses, when they're seven years old or nine years old, they put through three-year courses, and within the three years time, they complete the memorization of the whole Quran. Memorization to the degree that all you have to do is to open anywhere in the book, and you start to recite from one verse, they will complete that verse for you. Not, you know, because you have different levels of memorization, but this is exact memorization. They have competitions in Mecca, they have competitions in Malaysia and Indonesia every year between, uh, amongst women, amongst men for memorization of Quran. Even in the Philippines they have competitions. I visited competitions in Mindanao between those who had memorized the whole Quran. That is the Quran preserved as no other book, no other scripture in the world can we say has that level of preservation. As I said, the significance of all this was one, that Prophet was the last Prophet. So the text which he brought had to be preserved until for all time. So his prophethood had significance. Two, his main miracle. Now he had miracles as other prophets had, similar, different from others, some and similar to others during his lifetime, which proved to the people of Islam that he was a prophet. But because he was to be the last of the prophets, his miracle had to be available to you today. You see, if somebody were to ask you, do you believe that Jesus brought the dead back to life? Okay, as Muslims we believe. Christians believe, but if somebody said to you, can you prove to me that Jesus brought the dead back to life? You cannot prove it. It is something you have taken on faith because you read it in the scripture and you accept that scripture. In the Quran it is mentioned that Jesus brought the dead back to life, that's why we believe. But if you are to ask to, be, to prove it, no one could prove it. If you are asked to prove that Moses caused the Red Sea to be separated, God's miracle for Moses, Red Sea was separated and Moses went across. Could you prove that? You cannot prove it. It is something that you have accepted on faith. We believe it because it's in the Quran also. But those miracles were not to prove to you and I today that those were prophets of God. Because a miracle, remember a miracle is revealed to a prophet to prove to his people that he is a prophet of God. Because they will see that miracle. 
Those who were with Moses, when they saw the Red Sea separated and they rolled through, you think they had any doubt that Moses was a prophet of God? No. That's the evidence. Those that saw Jesus had the dead come back to life. You think they had any doubt that Jesus was a prophet of God? No. That was the evidence to them. But that's not evidence for us. We know about the prophets of old by the prophets that came to us and informed us about them. So since Prophet Muhammad was to be the last of the prophets, then he had to have a miracle which would last till today, last till the end of time, that would stand as proof that he was a prophet of God. And that miracle is the Quran. When we go in future sessions, we will look in more detail about the miracle of the Quran. Miracle not only in its preservation, the fact that it can be preserved as preserved, but miracle from a scientific point of view, miracle as a literary miracle, there's a variety of different angles that it is a miracle. Okay. And of course, you know, this is of course particularly significant, as we said also, because of the fact that Prophet Muhammad can this is confirming that Prophet Muhammad was not sent only to the people of Arabia. He was not sent to the Arabs, just to the Arabs. He was raised amongst them, that message came in Arabic, but he was sent, as Allah said in the Quran, as a messenger to all of mankind. See, all of the previous prophets, they were sent to particular people in particular places for particular periods of time. And that is why God did not preserve their revelation, because they were only meant for their time. So, the fact that the Qur'an is preserved as it is preserved is also confirming the prophethood. This is the confirmation of the prophethood, and that that prophethood was to all of mankind and not limited to the time in which the prophet came. Okay, inshallah we'll stop here on the compilation of the Qur'an. We said the preservation of the Qur'an took place from the time of Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu He preserved it in his own memory, in the memory of his companions, by reciting it in prayer, by teaching all the new Muslims to recite it, by encouraging his companions to learn and teach it. And also it was preserved in writing. He had scribes around him who wrote the Qur'an. He did not himself write. And so people say, oh, this is a product of Muhammad, Muhammad's book, his scripture. No, it's not his. He didn't write. He only conveyed to the people what was revealed to him. And it was revealed over a period of 23 years. I'm going to look into that, the significance of that later. After his death, within a year after his death, Abu Bakr, instructed Zayd ibn Thabit on the recommendation of Omar ibn al-Khattab to record it in one text, to bring all the pieces together and make one official text. And this was done by Zayd ibn Thabit because he was one of those who had memorized the whole Qur'an. He was one of the scribes of Prophet Muhammad and he was one of those who was with him in the last Ramadan of his life in which he recited the whole Qur'an completely two times. Usually he recited one time in his life, in Ramadan. In that last Ramadan he recited it two times. And he was with him. 
We said that when Abu Bakr died, he gave that recorded text to Omar ibn al-Khattab, who was assassinated in 644. Before he died, he gave it to his sister Hafsa. Sorry, is his sister? Oh, is this his sister? Is that? Wait a minute. Uh, Hafsa is the wife of Prophet Muhammad sallam, but what is she? She is daughter or sister? Let me confirm that. Yeah, I said daughter before. I'm not, I'm, my mind is uh, slipping here. Ah, his daughter, yeah. Daughter. Daughter, correct. Okay. Uh, his daughter, Hafsa, who was one of the wives of Prophet Muhammad. May God peace and blessing be upon him. Now, uh, Hafsa kept it with her. One of the wives, yes. Uh, Uthman ibn Affan was the third caliph, right? During his reign, within the first year or so, they detected some problems in the uh, recitation of Quran and incorrect lighting. So, official copies were made by the second year of his reign, seven official copies which were sent to the major centers of Islam, and all of the other unofficial copies were destroyed. So all copies from 646 onwards were made from that original seven, which were made from the original one made in the time of Abu Bakr. So that was the method by which it was ensured that one text unchanged in writing would be handed down. And all of the texts that we have today, they are all traceable back to that original text. No change in Quran whether you're in Indonesia or you're in Algeria, whether you're in Britain or you're in America, we only have one Qur'an. Okay? We said the significance of that, in summary, was that Prophet Muhammad was the last of the Prophets. Therefore, his, the scripture which came to him had to be preserved until the last day, available to all mankind until the last day. It was his main miracle. It had to be the proof of prophethood that he was a prophet for all mankind. And because of the fact that he was not sent only to the people amongst whom he was raised, but to all of mankind, its preservation also confirms his, the finality of his prophethood. Any questions? Fatima died, Fatima died six months after Prophet Muhammad died. So she wasn't even alive when it was written. So that's nonsense. Okay? When the final, that copy was made in the time of Abu Bakr, Fatima was already dead. Okay? Any other question? Well, it's 9-10, you know, what happens is that this is uh, Gregorian, if you go by Hijra, you know, because it was lunar calendars, right, that they're counting the dates by. So all of these dates, when time you say 9, it could be 9-10, 6-32, it could be 1-2. 631, 632, it's an approximation.
donated for a particular purpose. It's not permissible for it to be used for any other purpose unless permission is gotten from the person who donated it. Right? If I donate money to build a masjid, you are not allowed to say, well, okay, we have some poor people who make a smaller masjid and I'll use this extra money and give it to the poor people. No. It's not to say that's not a bad idea. If the people in the town, for example, where you're going to build a masjid, they don't need a masjid so big, they could make it smaller and this other money could be used to build a school, for example. They need a school or some other function that the society needs. But you must get permission from the one who has donated before you do that. You cannot do it on your own. So unless the person has given you the money and said, do what you think is best. If they give you in that, in the, in the, in that uh, form, then yes, you can you know, adjust. But if they've given you specifically for building the masjid, it's not allowed for you to use any of that money for any other purpose. Even? For a person who is in need of money to take a loan from the bank, this is what you're asking about. Is this permissible? If your life or your limb is threatened, because there are circumstances in Islam when you are permitted to do what is normally considered forbidden, areas whose harm does not go beyond yourself, based on the verse in which God describes the forbidden food, including pig, and then he said that if your life is threatened and you eat, you are not held to account. You're starving to death as a Muslim, though we are not allowed to eat pig, pork, or drink alcohol.